they're buying a diamond for literally like a fraction of the cost of a natural diamond. Now, keep in mind, the only difference between a natural diamond and a lab-created diamond is where the rough was created. One, one was mined out of the ground, and one was created in laboratory conditions and very special reactors that basically projecting high pressure and high temperature literally mimics what happens in the crust of the earth. The only difference is instead of like literally millions or billions of years that it takes a rough to be crystallized in nature, they shortcut it for about two, three weeks. I'm Stephen Fairbanks, a writer and teacher from St. Louis, Missouri, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we sit down with Ari Berkovich, who is a diamond wholesaler. I don't know about you, but I've always been suspicious of the diamond industry. It's one of those things that people know a diamond is forever. They know all the campaigns to try and get young men professing their love to a young woman to spend a whole lot of money on a thing that doesn't seem like it gets much use. So we sit down with Ari to figure out, like, why are diamonds valuable? What does it take to create a diamond? And what is the whole world of buying and selling and moving these things around look like? Ari is a fascinating character that uh, really has a view on the world that we don't get very often. And if you do, it's because you're sitting across from a salesman. But for this rare chance, we get to sit and listen to somebody talk that isn't selling us anything at all. And so we get to ask the tough questions. We're going to get to that interview in just a moment. But this week, we did a couple of legacy interviews. They were really powerful. It was a couple that came in and they described their life story that they built together. One of the things that I learned from the conversation was that two people could be completely different from one another, and yet that's what really made them work as a couple. Even during the interview, they had different ways of telling stories. They had different things they thought were funny and different things they thought should be included. But when I go back and look at the conversation they had together, that's where the magic was. You can capture their laughter together, their gentle touch, and just the whole dynamic of them. We're excited to be delivering these interviews, and if you would like me to sit down with your parents, regardless of how well they get along and tell stories, then go to LegacyInterviews.com to find out more. A quick housekeeping note, thank you to everyone who came over to the Fountain app. I am astonished with how many of you took the time to download the app, but it is great now you're able to listen to podcasts and get paid in Satoshis, a really, really tiny unit of Bitcoin. And then without doing anything at all, you can decide to give those Satoshis to the podcasters that you like listening to the most. I think that this is a powerful way to create a dynamic between an audience and a podcast producer. So thank you so much to the people that join there. And know that it is a really easy way to make comments on the podcast, to be able to communicate with other listeners, and uh, really derive more value for value, which is what I love doing. All right, we're going to head to the interview with my man, Ari Berkovich. Ari Berkovich, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. How many months should a person uh, put into their engagement ring? As far as like a monetary value? Yeah, or? this is the thing that everybody <laughs> always says. Like, oh, it should be three months salary or six months salary. Is this a real thing? It is. I, I think it was uh, the beers advertisement that came somewhere in the late 50s, 1950s, where they said, um, you know, it's it's two and a half times of your monthly salary. That's what's accepted, you know, in our in Western society as far as an engagement ring. But 
You know, I think it's a fad because everything changed in our world. I mean, back then, you know, people would get a job and stay on that job for years, right? So they really had a projected income for many, many years. Today, people are changing jobs so often and they can afford diamond rings much more than they can afford them back then for many reasons. One of the reasons is there's competition. You can buy a diamond anywhere. You can buy a diamond walking into uh, the big box stores, or even a Walmart, or even Costco, or you can just know a guy or know a jeweler, like a fine jewelry store. And it's very interesting that we live in an area that seems like everybody has their jeweler. Everybody has somebody that took care of their family over the years. So really, I mean, the consumers are in the driver's seat in the sense that they buy a ring for whatever they can afford. They don't live up to like a certain standard. Traditionally, like, you know, there's kind of like a silent competition. If you are within a group of friends, usually they all get engaged and, and married around the same time. I think that that sets the tone a lot of times. Yeah, I think it's interesting you're talking about people being kind of the having a different situation. I was just reading about Peter Hitchens, who's this uh, commentator over in the UK, and he was describing how much England has changed, that if you go back and look at photographs of people from back in the day, they were almost all wearing the same clothes. They were almost all doing the same things. And when television came around, then this prompted people to say, the way that I can be unique is I'm going to have different clothes than everybody else. I'm going to be different. And so it's funny that I imagine the De Beers like thing probably really did work out well for people to say, ah, this is what I need to do in order to be normal. I think, yeah, I would agree. I think it worked for them. Uh, at the same time, uh, they're definitely like in charge of, you know, where diamonds and, and you know, the jewelry as, as a whole industry uh, is, is at today. I mean, in the respect of, they definitely put on the map the fact that you have to have a diamond ring in order like to get engaged or to ask for someone's hand. So back in the day, I think that it was really accepted that you could give someone a promise ring. What it means is it was just a piece of just a gold band. It didn't have to have any gemstones or any precious stones like diamonds. You could have just spent, I don't know, 20 30 $40 on just a silver or gold or platinum band. And you would be, that would be sufficient enough to at least like secure your spot with, with, with your significant other. Yeah. I knew so little about this when I got started because I was the first among my friends to get married. And I didn't even realize that you buy a ring after you buy the engagement ring. I was like, <laughs> isn't the engagement ring, the wedding ring? Like I just didn't know. And I think a lot of people probably uh, are definitely confused about that. I think the beauty of engagement in general, and I, I, I'm saying that because I see a lot of the younger generation really struggle with that today, is an engagement is, is a testing period for, for both people. And I think that's the beauty of it as well. In the state of Missouri, and again, I'm not, I'm not super uh, special when it comes to like divorce law or anything like that, but it's definitely a contract when you give someone an engagement ring. It's a condition for your marriage. And not only that, some, some courts look at it as a gift in the condition of if, if the marriage did not happen, you can actually ask for it to get it back. 
And some courts look at it, and, and I'm saying that because every state, is, it's different. Some courts say, um, no matter what's going to happen, whether you stay together or not, or you complete the process of getting married, um, the woman or the guy uh, gets to keep the rank. So I will go back to what I was going to say about younger people today. Are It's very common for them to live with each other way before they're getting engaged. Where if you go just one generation back, it was a big no-no. Has nothing to do whether you grew up like Christian, Muslim, Catholic, Jewish, you know, especially if a woman was leaving their parents' house to live with a guy without that ring on her finger, without like that commitment, you know, it was it was definitely frowned upon. It was taboo. I do these legacy interviews and I get to hear when people are telling like what really happened. And what I think is going on, there's there were a lot more old people living together that like would never have told their family about it if they weren't like the the reason I say this is because I've heard so many people be like, well, we maybe did, you know, he was away at school and so we would go. But I think it was like something that had to be kept hidden in a way that definitely wasn't. Now, I know for myself, right. my wife was not, we were not moving in together until we were engaged. Like that was going I, I'm to the same. Yeah, I'm the same way. When I met my wife, she had her condo and I had my house. And it was very clear that um, until I was specifically going to propose her to marry me. I mean, I, I didn't even have like any idea if she would even want to move in with me. Like I, I knew that I had to like commit to her at some point because she was so independent, still is. And that, that's the beauty of it. I think there's a lot of people that actually jump into marrying someone without having to, you know, spend time together, having that independency. And, and then they move in together and getting married around the same time. And I think they don't have that buffer to kind of see if they're right for each other. Yeah. And the engagement point period, which you are totally right. This allows you that it allows you. And you also now get to see, like, I used to think marriage was really about just the two people that are getting married. No way. You're marrying her family. She's marrying your family. hundred percent. You're figuring out how do they handle things, right? That party, that wedding, you think all that, this is all about us. No, it's about like, how are these families going to come together? How do decisions get made? And you get to be in that firsthand seat where real money is being put down, real commitments. Like, how is all this going to work? And I wish I would have known this before because I think that that I went through a lot of suffering resisting what was just, just the family. It was just what you were getting into as opposed to trying to figure out, like, how do I how do I make it so we get the wedding we want understanding like this is a community thing. And it's really like, how do we make the wedding that makes it so our families grow together? I would agree. I mean, I think that it's definitely um, that engagement ring allows you to have the time that you need to really understand if you're right for each other, but also planning the wedding together. I mean, there's a lot to be said about that. Some people take a year, some people take three years. To plan a wedding but i think there's something magical about that engagement time and i'm not speaking about it as a diamond wholesaler slash diamond dealer i'm speaking about it as someone that was um single for for a very long time i did not propose to my wife until i was like 37. oh wow okay and at the time we were dating for almost three years so the trigger was we started going to a lot of weddings and if you're taking your girlfriend to <laughs> weddings, 
and she's not sure what's her status. It's kind of a big deal. And, and it dawned on me. I mean, I, and I knew that I have something very special. I mean, she's an incredible woman and I, you know, everybody has doubts for me it was just the fact that we're really, our upbringings were like in different backgrounds. You know, I grew up in Israel. I'm Jewish. She grew up here in Wentzville, the small town, and she grew up Catholic. It was the it wasn't the religion, you know, aspect of it as much as just you know, there's certain things. Radically and, and, different cultures. Your food is different, how you treat mom and dad is different. Correct. Luckily, the similarities and really the uh, the shared values that we both grew up with are almost identical. You know, she is the oldest of five girls. And they're, they're all very close to one another and they're very close with the parents and the grandparents. And uh, they grew up in this environment that very hardworking, you know, middle class, um, huge respect to the community and, and to their cousins and their, their family, their extended family. So very similar to the way I, you know, I was raised and, and growing up in Israel is family comes first, you know, I mean, and that's, that comes definitely, you feel it more in high holidays, obviously, like everybody else in the country today, but you also feel it uh, when you're in need or when you, when something doesn't go well. Uh, for me, unfortunately, I mean, and I'm saying, unfortunately, I missed that part because, you know, I, I left by choice. I left my country at a very young age because I had basically an opportunity of a lifetime. I studied gemology right after my military service and met a guy that told me like, hey, if you really want to succeed in this business, it's not like being in laboratory conditions, you know, grading diamonds all day. You have to be out there and sell. And he was 100% correct. So, yeah. So let's talk about this. Like what attracts someone to gemology? Like wh why did you get pulled in this direction? I think it's fascinating. Um, I knew a little bit about the business at the time. Israel was probably number one exporter of diamonds in the world. I'm talking about like early 2000s. So post 9-11, something very interesting happened in the world. The uh, demand for diamonds actually almost uh, doubled itself in less than a year. Why? I think for the most part, when atrocities and, and things on the scale of 9-11 happen, uh, more and more people actually looking for, you know, that emotional security. And, and a lot of people tied the knot around that time. So the demand for, for diamonds uh, was huge. 2001, 2002, that's the time that, so I didn't move to the U.S. until 2002 to, to do my internship. But I remember actually one of the very first cities that I landed to in the United States was Phoenix, Arizona. It's funny because we're, this weekend, there's a Super Bowl out there. And um, it was very interesting at the time because it was like a gold rush in Phoenix. I remember like people from LA and Las Vegas was moving there. And uh, it wasn't as big as it is today, obviously, post, you know, 21, 22 years. Uh, back then, there was just an amount of wealth. I mean, the middle class was very subtle. And, and all you've seen is like just those 
brand new exotic cars everywhere, golf courses. Yeah, Scottsdale is blowing up. The golf courses are going up in the Arizona, in the Phoenix area. Exactly. So I remember that time and I had that point of view of starting in the jewelry industry, in the diamond business. Uh, the business was booming. I used to work for a diamond cutter and one of their partners that I've done my internship with would turn out to be one of my best mentors. He's still living out there, Gabby. Um, he showed me the ropes and everything, but he he had probably some of the best years in his career around that time. And what is it you you go out, you're in gemology school, you're grading diamonds, you're just like holding them up to the light and looking at them? What are you doing? Yeah, so essentially, if you are a full-time gemologist, you, you can land in de many different environments, situations. One of them is working for a, a large laboratory like GIA or AGS, or there are many different like companies that grading diamonds and producing reports to diamonds. Um, one of those, you know, I, I had an opportunity similar to that, but it wasn't really appealing to me just because of the scenario sitting in an office or a laboratory condition all day. And, you know, it gets boring after a while, especially if you, if you scale and you do it like on a daily basis, you can see dozens of diamonds every day. It's just, Something about you is just like becoming very numb about it. And when I study gemology, I've seen it because a lot of the testing is, okay, grade this and grade that. And um, it's fun in the beginning because you're excited about discovering like different qualities and different ratings. And especially when it comes to like color diamonds, natural color diamonds, that world is fascinating. And um, I remember vividly like, actually knocking on doors while I was like still in gemology school. And um, it was around that time that you had to have some blood relation to those diamond cutters. It was very hard to, especially in Israel. I mean, it's families that came from Europe post-World War II to Israel. And a lot of them were actually forced into the diamond business. I know it sounds like crazy, but a lot of people didn't have a choice but to convert their wealth into something that is relatively easy to travel with. Oh. And diamonds and obviously gold and other things is, is one way of doing that. That's how a lot of the Jewish population in Europe, specifically like the Netherlands, Belgium, that region, they, they got into diamonds because of the war. And so did you have a blood connection to diamond cutters? I did not. I was very lucky. I was one of like seven or eight people with the company that hired me at the time, the David Erebov group, that actually hired me based on my talent, based on what they thought um, I was capable on doing, which is they wanted sales guys. They wanted people to go out there and sell. They didn't want people sitting in a lab or... They didn't need any buyers or people going to deal with what we call tenders, people that go to deal with like the rough side of the business. So the diamond industry is very similar to real estate. You've got a lot of different industries, sub-industries within the whole industry. So one thing is interesting, I'm dealing with the final product. Diamonds that are cut and polished and ready for a jeweler to use for a setting, for a ring, for earrings for anything they want to set it in. So the rough side of the business is a whole nother level of, you know, dealings and, and understandings and, and 
completely different set of buying skills. It's beyond what you learn in gemology. You need to be able to look at a crystal that just came out of the ground and, and really see the potential of what are you going to cut it to, you know? Which today, obviously, with technology, you've got 3D scanners and other tools that help you do that. But the guys that were like dealing with rough until this day, that's all they do. They don't know the business as well as I do when it's the final product and vice versa. So if we go through the path, it's somebody mines these diamonds and then they sell them as little rocks that are kind of milky white kind of things. I, I, I guess I'm basing all of my knowledge off that movie, the Adam Sandler one. Uh, what was that called? Oh, my God. That's a horrible movie. Really? I loved it. <laughs> it's very authentic because I think like talking about the guy perfect what got is an it? addiction. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, a gambling addiction. Yeah, something gem, uncut gems, uncut gems. That's what it is. I didn't like it because it portraits like a lot of the jewelers, especially the ones I deal with in the Midwest. They're nothing like that guy. That guy was like sleazy, drunk. Yeah, cheating on his wife and doing all kinds of right, stuff. Right, yeah, gambler. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, taking stuff from people on consignment and does whatever. None of that shenanigans. I mean, most of the jewelers are not only that they're reputable and really good people, they've been in business for generations. Generations and generations. So imagine that I would sell to people in the Midwest that some of them been been around for over 100 years. You know, think about it. It's like three, four generations of guys that they don't send their kids to school because it's obvious when their child like finishes high school is back in the shop, either polishing <laughs> or working on watches or um, on the floor selling jewelry. And so there are the uncut gems or whatever that come to a buyer that says, hey, I think we can cut this thing into a diamond this way. I'm willing to buy it in bulk. I'm going to buy this set of, of the, like, how does all this so work? So just to organize for our listeners and for you, in a nutshell, what's happening in, in, in this world, it, it, it's divided by, you know, who's controlling what, right? The beers, as, as a mining company, they still have a large stake. They probably control closer to like 30% of, of the diamond rough in the world. Uh, they have certain mines in countries like Africa. And um, I mean, many different countries in Africa, I'm sorry. And in Africa itself, it really divides to a lot of like private miners per se that are not part of the beers that they're basically contracting some of the locals to do the work and actually creating those communities of mining, of mining working force that, that does what they're expected to do. Back in the 90s, obviously, you, you heard the term over and over again, uh, conflict diamonds, or as people call it, blood, blood diamonds. Diamond, yeah. And that, that happened and probably still happening because some of the mining uh, countries have a lot of like unstable regimes. Obviously, Angola... You know, it's a small country in Africa is a good example of that. Or Sierra Leone or Botswana. Those countries that unfortunately had gone through so many like corrupted government and changes. And what conflict diamonds really mean is that a lot of the activity, the militias, the rebels that working in those countries 
they use diamonds as a vehicle to either laundering money or use it for terrorism. Yeah, in my perspective, like anytime you have a, a, a good that you can go out and just with pickaxes or shovels, go get it, then it's very easy for there to be conflict over that, right? It's whoever is the strongest that can control that zone. It's not like going out and doing deep sea oil well drilling where you got to have engineers, you got to have people cooperate, you've got to set up all these things. So to me, like, I know when it was popular, people talked about that stuff, but like, it's, it's bound to happen, right? Anytime you're going to have something where you can just go out and as long as you control it, you can, like, that. that's going to create conflict. It's going to be conflict around all minerals that are like that. 100%. I mean, I'm just going to leave it here and I'm not, because I think that would open up conversation that is beyond what I do, but the way we use energy for electric cars today is mined in a very similar way that diamonds are being mined. So I think in areas where you have natural resources and elements that you have to uh, extract and mine out of the ground, some of the local, you know, manpower uh, has to help you do that. And what happened between that point and actually until whatever maker, whatever manufacturer that's going to process and handling that element is doing within that process. There's, there's a lot of things that um, are not very kosher. And to me, when people automatically think that electric cars are the answer for, you know, sustainability and, and less carbon footprints and things like that, I think they're in the wrong. I mean, I'm not against electric cars, God forbid. I just, I think that people don't don't really realize what it takes for lithium or cobalt or other elements that are ne necessary uh, to bring the car to that point. Uh, there's a lot of things that are very similar in my industry that are happening that I know a little bit about, but obviously you have to jump through a lot of hoops and a lot of red tape in those countries of origin uh, to get that, to get it to the U.S. or to get it to China or to get it to Europe or wherever they manufacture whatever the end consumer is going to use. And so we get these mined diamonds. They go to somebody that then... So back to what I was explaining, the beers, because they're controlling almost 30% of, of that sector, they created something that's called site holders. So the beer's taking site holders. And if you're a site holder... You have a contract with the beers for X amount of years. And once a month, you're getting a box with those crystals. Again, the quantity, the carat weight, that's something that is set behind the scene. A lot of times, actually, those site holders don't really know what they're getting, but they cannot refuse those boxes. Basically, a box shows up in your office, whether you're in South Africa, Tel Aviv, Antwerp, you can be anywhere in the world. And if you refuse that box, basically... That license, it's like licensing to buy rough diamond and cut them, is taken away from you. So other than the beers, the other largest you know, supplier of diamonds in the world, most people don't know that, is Alrosa. Alrosa is the Russian governmental country uh, authority in diamonds. And obviously, the Russian government is controlling, I would say about the same, about 20-something percent. Uh, didn't know anything at all about them of that market. So in the last year and a half since the conflict with your Ukraine, obviously, um, there's sanctions, and definitely the people that used to buy rough from Russia, specifically a lot of the product coming from like northern eastern part of Siberia. And again, 
not to get into mining, but if some of your listeners like that whole idea, is completely different mining from a lot of the methods they mine in Africa, in areas, in countries in Africa. And I'll give you an example. The De Beers family bought some land in South Africa back in the late 1800s that was uh, very rich in like what we called the, the kimberlite, that kimberlite pipes, inactive volcanoes. Basically, over time, the rock, what we call like the actual gem quality diamonds, would basically just surface. So there wasn't a lot of like, you know, mining to do. Again, it's a process. You don't just like go on the shore and pick rocks in the sand and you've got a diamond. There is some kind of like a sorting that is involved in this, but it's completely different than an open pit mining in Russia where you have to dig so deep, so deep in the ground that literally like you can see those holes from uh, satellite imaging oh, from yeah. space. Yeah, and they're like, they're, the holes just are absolutely mind-bogglingly large. Correct. And, and I would say, in my opinion, yeah, those holes can be environmentally, you know, coming an issue over time. Uh, in fact, there's like no fly zone over those open pit mining because there's such a like air circulation that creating like this suction effect that helicopters and planes cannot fly over those open pit mining. <laughs> I didn't know that. If you want to Google specifically, there's, and I know because the company that I used to work for, eventually they became my, my suppliers, my vendors. Back in 2007, the business changed a lot. And they wanted nothing to do anymore with selling to the retailers like I do. They just wanted to go full tilt into uh, cutting, into manufacturing. So they started working with directly with uh, miners in, in Russia. And a lot of that, and by the way, the, the quality, the natural diamonds coming out of those mines is spectacular. Really, as far as like the gem quality, keep in mind, a lot of the industrial diamonds uh, that are being mined out of the ground are uh, relatively easy to process compared to white diamonds, stuff that we would use for jewelry. Only two and a half, three percent of all the diamonds that are being mined off the ground, you know, are being used in, in jewelry. So think about it. People think that it's just uh, it's a marketing scheme where De Beers is, is pricing a one carat, let's say, for seven or eight thousand dollars for a specific color and clarity. I don't think that it's considering everything that's happening behind the scenes and all the moving parts and, and all that processing of mining and cutting and certifying the diamonds. Uh, it's definitely expensive. And there, there's a reason why it costs the way it costs. So people are mining all these diamonds. There's a bunch right. that go to industrial uses and yes. then some 2% goes to like hey, this could go to people that are willing to put the time and effort into making them from this rough rock into something beautiful. Correct. I mean, look, there's a lot of other private miners that uh, can be contracted to do other things with them. But for the most part, when somebody's mining in areas where literally they know what they've got and they know that there's some really good quality of gem quality diamonds in those mines, they, they're exploiting that. They, they're not letting it go. And they're doing everything they can to optimize, you know, the carrot weight and the color and clarity out of each rock that comes out of that ground. And when somebody uh, gets a, a raw diamond or this crystal, as you're calling it, when you're going to turn it into jewelry, what, what's the next step? 
There's a lot of steps. I mean, so there's a lot of different categories. Again, I'm not coming from that rough field, but the raw diamonds, the, the rough, we call it rough material, uh, has to be categorized because you've got different forms and different shapes. The most valuable ones are usually what we call like sewables, the ones that you can literally saw down the middle and create. Imagine like this cone head, you know, double-sided cone head crystal that you just saw in the middle. If you look at a diamond, any shape, it has the pavilion and it has a crown. So it's a beautiful thing to see that when you find a very valuable rock, everything kind of lines up and you can cut it and obviously maximize the weight. And then if it happens to be a really clean and white material, you hit, you hit the jackpot. And so, but it's not always happened that way. A lot of, a lot of the rocks that they find um, has to be actually broken to the part where you can lose 65% of the original weight just to cut a single rock. And so you, the people that are in, you know, starting to do this cutting, they, they get this box and they say like, how much do they know about what this is going to look like when they're done with it? It's a great question. I mean, a lot of them don't. I mean, and with all the years of experience that they have, an average manufacturer in the diamond business takes them about 16 to 18 months of a cycle just to like understand their P&L and their profitability from that box. And so are they <laughs> polishing it right there? Like what, the person that gets that box? Some of them are a one-stop shop. A lot of them, you know, they've been in the game long enough that it's better and more profitable for their business model actually to flip it to the next guy. Some of them will work on like literally like two, 3%, but you know, an average box worth millions. So they're willing just to take that low of a margin and just flip it to the next guy. And the cutters usually that have outlets and, and have the clients and the consumers on the other end, they're the ones willing to pay because they really know how to market it and, and, and control the price. The cutter, that's, I think, where I'm trying to aim towards. Because when, when I was looking at diamonds for the first time, um, I always thought like, oh, you just find them and then you shine them up and then you've got it. But that's not at all what's going on. You've got to take this rock and say, what do I think it could look like? Correct. So you've got a lot of uh, technology tools today that assisting those cutters. Uh, one of them is the Serin machine. It's a company, actually, it's a technology that was developed in Israel in the early 80s. They are 3D scanners that's scanning and all of a sudden, like rendering that piece of rock, turning it into a 3D file. And basically, by polishing, we call it like schleifing, a very small window, you can take your scope and look inside that crystal and say, you know what? There's enough inclusions on that side that we can kind of eliminate. In diamonds, like the bigger, the cleaner, and the wider the rock is, that's part of like the four C's, right? The more money you get for that crystal. So every cutter's goal is number one, what is the biggest rock I can get out of that crystal? Oh, and shape it so that all it'll look beautiful and be clear Correct. that it'll be as large as it can be. And the scanner does it for you. The scanner basically tells you out of this like eight or nine or 10 carat rock, you can get a two carat pear shape 
uh, a half a carat round, a one carat emerald cut. One guy I think that does it very well with his marketing, and he is a one-stop shop, uh, is Graph Jewelers. You know, they're definitely um, notorious for being like similar to all the other uh, high-end jewelers like Cartier or Harry Winston. They mark up their diamonds four or five times, but they're literally like going to tenders and they're going to all those auctions. They're buying their diamonds from private miners and they go through the entire process until it literally goes into a diamond rank. And by the time it goes into a diamond rank, we are in show me state, right? Yeah. <laughs> that is a three carat oval diamond, just on a simple solitaire. And, you know, to get to that level of what this diamond has been through, uh, if you look at the process, a lot of people look at the cert and they look at the date that that diamond was actually certified, but that doesn't reflect when that diamond was cut. You know, it could be two years before that when it was actually mined out of the ground and processed. So there's a lot that goes behind the scene just to get to that part. Obviously, the larger the diamond is um, in natural diamonds, the higher the price point is. And when, when I look at, you know, a diamond, you see the flat top right here, and then you've got like little triangles or little diamond shaped things. Diamonds have facets. Uh, the top that you're referring to is the crown. When a diamond is being set, um, you only see the crown, which is the top part of the diamond. Diamonds are being cut in a way that they act like a, a prism for, for light. And you know, there was a physicist that back in the day, his name was uh, Snell. When he realized that there's different gems and different diamonds, he actually started experimenting with light and optics and wanted to find the optimum angles for, for light. But he discovered something very interesting. If a light hits a surface in, of any object, especially something as shiny as a diamond, it would actually leave in the exact opposite angle to the other direction. So when they start cutting diamonds, you probably heard the terminology ideal cut. It's not just enough to cut the diamond. You wanna optimize on how well you can build the ratio of the crown and the pavilion to be able to allow the light to get inside the stone, traditionally from the crown, bounce around and leave. Because if the light doesn't leave in a certain angle, what you're going to end up with is that means the diamond is usually too deep and the face up of the diamond will look dark. It won't shine and bounce like a white diamond should. And if you cut it too shallow, the light will traditionally will leak from the sides. So there's a lot that goes into it. And that's a great question because when dealing with rough, and I would not want to be that guy to decide how to cut the diamond because Obviously, you don't just start faceting the diamond in that step. You have to saw it first to separate to separate the rock. So there's like three diamonds in there, and we want to cut them out and be like, we can get an emerald cut out of this and a cushion cut out of this. Exactly. Okay. And it's a very slow process because only a diamond can cut a diamond. And it can take literally like three to five days just to separate two pieces because you're putting a lot of heat. And... Diamonds are being created by, you know, high pressure and high temperature in nature and in laboratory conditions today, which I will get into. But obviously, you want to control that heat. 
you can't heat it in one spot. So you basically have to do a lot of maneuvering just for the sewing process. Then you have brooding, you've got like polishing, you've got faceting, and then we, we call it like the final part is like the burlandier, which is just giving it like that light touch of making it, giving it the shine that it needs to, you know? So it's, it's a process. And obviously some guys, especially big cutters that cut a lot of the smaller stones, like India, specifically in Bombay, they're geniuses. They have some automated machines that they can leave it overnight to do the sewing for them. You know, those scanners will guide. I don't know if you've ever seen a polishing. We call it mula. I don't know if you, it's like a big polishing wheel that spins in a specific RPM. Again, depending on the size and the shape of the crystal. And you literally have to apply this paste that's consisted of diamond dust. And that's what helps you polishing and, and cutting pieces of the diamond. And again, it's a slow process. So there, there's a lot of automation going on today with sensors for temperature and heat and pressure that allow those machines to cut some of the time that people are doing it by hand. Still, keep in mind, like a lot of the cutting, probably 80% of the diamonds you see nowadays are still being cut by hand. So when I look at one of these diamonds and I yeah. see like, oh, this is a beautiful little angle right here. Like uh, somebody chose to put that in there or that's naturally what was a part of the, of the diamond itself. You're talking about the shape itself? Well, like, let's just say, um, so this is all like my collection. This is the stuff that I take around the stores. Yeah, these are unbelievable. I can't. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So, so this, this is a four carat. Uh, this is an emerald cut. Uh, believe it or not, the oval that you just looked at, that is a natural diamond. The four carat emerald cut that you're holding right now, it's actually a lab created diamond. This is a man-made diamond. Okay. They both share exactly identical atomic structure, same hardness and same everything. And that's what scares our industry today so much. Uh, the lab created are a thing, you know? I mean, it's definitely accepted by some of the new consumers out there for a simple reason that they're buying a diamond for literally like a fraction of the cost of a natural diamond. Now, keep in mind, the only difference between a natural diamond and a lab-created diamond is where the rough was created. One, one was mined out of the ground and one was created in laboratory conditions and very special reactors that basically projecting high pressure and high temperature literally mimics what happens in the crust of the earth the only difference is instead of like literally millions or billions of years that it takes a rough to be crystallized in nature, they shortcut it for about two, three weeks. And is there some test you can run to determine that one's created in a lab and the other one's created in the ground? 100%. So to the naked eye, even for me as a jeweler, if I just take my loop to it, 99% of the time be impossible to tell. Unless... It's laser inscribed. So a lot of the diamonds, especially the ones that I carry, I separate the two products by laser inscriptions. So on the girdle, on the belt of the diamond, what connects the crown and the pavilion, you can hatch the serial number. And a lot of times it will have the acronym LG if it's lab grown or will not have LG if it's a natural diamond. We'll just have the report number on it. So that's just a nice safety feature, not just for 
guys like me, the sellers, it's actually more of a safety features for the consumers to know what's in their ring. Yeah, because there is something too, like the sensation of knowing this diamond was created somehow naturally and this one you know like it feels different it's just like artwork you could have what we were talking at before we got started about prints right you could have literally the exact same mona lisa but it feels very different if it's the one painted versus the one that was just you know copied at kinko's or something you know that's a good point i don't know necessarily that i would compare the two and i i can totally understand why you're asking it that's what's so cool about the technology on one hand, um, because you do need to have a very special tester that actually tests other elements than just the carbon, than just the diamond. Those optical testers basically, so I'll give you an example. A natural diamond has presence of nitrogen, or in some cases, in some colors could have boron. They only exist in the ground. Whereas, um, some of the lab-created diamonds will have more metallic inclusions and some things that can only be concluded while that diamond was crystallized in laboratory conditions. So, um, you know, a lot of people saying, well, lab-grown are much more green and better for, you know, the earth. I, I doubt that. And here is why. Those reactors use like an enormous amount of energy. <laughs> And I'm not against lab-created diamonds. I mean, I personally, as a diamond vendor, I, I love them because there's inventory. You know, when you, when you get specifics and calls and demands to create a piece of jewelry from jewelers or from individuals, some of the natural diamonds, especially in, in fancy shapes, like anything that is not around, like ovals or emeralds or pear shapes, there's some serious issues in, in inventory. There's scarcity is, is a real thing. You know, there, the demand that we've had in the last five years is huge. Social media has a big part of it. And the fact that um, every 20 year old today that's getting engaged wants to have at least one carat. It's a big deal. You know, our parents, my mom, she had a quarter carat diamond and she was as happy as she could be. But we're living in a very virtual, visual world. Everything is very visual. And um, people look up to influencers online and they want diamonds to be relatable. Obviously, natural diamonds are not relatable. When you start talking about a three carat diamond, you know, in a natural diamond in, in a higher color and clarity, talking about $60,000. That is not relatable to a 20-year-old that <laughs> just got his first job. Yeah. But a lab-created diamond at a one carat that he can buy for $3,000 is a little more relatable and affordable, too. So I think a lot of people look up to those influencers, and it's not that they want to be them, but they want to be inspired and do something that... I mean, I believe in a concept called mimetic desire, right? Where, where there's so many things for human beings to want in the world that, that our brains like try and take shortcuts by saying, well, what are other people that I admire? What do they like? And I want to like that too. And I don't think there's any way around it, right? If, if, you know, like we find out the symbols that mean something in our lives and then we go towards it and there's nothing even wrong with it. It's just being aware that that is how the human mind works. hundred percent. I also think that a lot of the 
perceived value between natural and, and lab-created diamonds, people are looking at it like the wrong way because it's supposed to be a very emotional purchase. In fact, you know, when you see a guy, usually it's guys, you know, walking into a store, it's definitely one of the largest items they've ever purchased other than a car. Oh, it was by far the most expensive thing I had ever bought. And you can tell by the time they decided they're going to pull the trigger and propose to the one, they get really excited and really emotional about it. And at that point, they forget all about uh, technicalities of color and clarity and measurements. Because if you go online, it will give you a headache. Most people think that they know because they do an extensive research. And, and there is a lot of really good information online. But to an extent, I, I always recommend, obviously, talking to a person that's been doing it for like the longest time and knows what they're talking about. Um, just like any other field. But well, I, we should even talk about like, what is your actual field? Because you're not the guy dealing with the the young 20-something that's got love in his heart and wants to get married. You're dealing with a totally different group. of Well, not a totally different, but a different group of people. Yeah, so the majority of my uh, business is wholesale. And I sell to jewelry stores that have been around for generations. So my sale is, is, is tough. Because I have to sell to people that know as much as I do and <laughs> even more about the products. So it's a very competitive market, but at the same time, I enjoy it because this year is actually my 20th year in business. I have some strong relationships that I can literally like leave something on consignment with my jewelers on a handshake, you know, and it's their word and it's my word. And, and that's it. And it's, it's a very unique business in that sense that you can do it that way. You know, you can hardly leave a restaurant today without paying a $10 check, right? But I've developed like this relationship where I can walk into a store and if they need something, I can just leave it for them to show to their client. Or if they need to buy something for stock, I give them my word that I... I get it on the specific time they need it for my suppliers overseas. And, and they know it's going to get there and they know it's going to be exactly what I, what I described. And they know that it's going to be the price I quoted them. So when I think diamond wholesaler, I'm imagining the movies where you like open up a little pouch and there's like a bag of diamonds in there. So I wish they would be more, um, you know, focusing on the small details, but almost. I mean, you would not throw a bunch of diamonds together in a little sack because they'll scratch each other. <laughs> Di diamonds have culets and they're very hard and they're very sharp. In fact, the diamond is the hardest, you know, mineral in nature. It's like hitting like 10 on, on the scale of hardness. So uh, that would be actually silly if they, if they did it that way. But especially the larger stones, you'll find them more individually wrapped in what we call parcel paper. Parcel paper is just a special paper that you carry the diamonds in. And yes, you, you do travel with that, showing the diamonds that way when they're loose. When they're set already, I mean, it's, it's much easier to look at the diamond and describe it and um, even imagining what it's going to look like by the time that it's a finished piece of jewelry. I think that's where a lot of consumers are confused because they look at diamonds sometimes when they're not being set 
and it's very hard for them to vision what it's going to look like by the time that they're going to be in a ring. So um, back to what you said earlier, I think that diamond wholesaling is is tough because you can sell your revenue can be consisted of like millions of dollars a year, but you're working on a very very small margin. So like I said, you have to have a very high volume and get to those big revenues. But at the end of the day, you've got a very high traveling expense. The logistics is very expensive. And your insurance is, is one factor that, especially if you're traveling with the goods to other stores, it's a very, very expensive insurance to have. Yeah, you mentioned, because we were talking about kids before the thing got started, about traveling. Yeah. So you're, where are you flying to, 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 and what are you doing when you get there? So when I meet with my suppliers, traditionally it's overseas. I go to Israel multiple times a year. That's where I'm from originally. And it's very convenient for me because I have people that I literally started in the business around the same time that their kids started in the business, you know? So we, we go 20 years back and we have such a fun relationship. But when we sit down to do business, it's business, you know? And, and it's another, it's a beautiful thing because not everybody know how to do the switch on and off between friendships and, and business, especially if you like the client, you have a supplier, but you also have to be friends with them at the end of the day. Um, it's a special relationship that you, you need to learn how to keep. Yeah, there's a psychology to selling. I mean, you almost never want to buy somebody from some, you never want to buy something from somebody that you don't feel like is your friend, but also you don't want to let your friendship be harmed by the business and the business, exactly. like it's a, it's a very touchy thing. It really is. So buying is one thing. Obviously with technology today, a lot of the diamonds that I bought the last two and a half years, some of the larger sizes were done online. Because when COVID hit, you know, it limited the way we can travel and move around. I did not have a month of my life, especially with small children at home. You can't just like leave everything and go for a month uh, with quarantine and whatnot. So you started using more and more uh, advanced camera system that is able to do a 360 of whatever gem or diamond that you're purchasing. So are you buying the diamonds one at a time when you're buying them? You're like, I want that one and that one? On larger goods, larger quantities, you have to. Because at the end of the day, you know, you don't have a room for making mistakes in this business. Because a mistake means that you either overpaying for something because you missed either an inclusion or you missed something, a flaw, could be like an extra facet or something about that diamond that it's okay if it's there, but it might not be for your client. So it's very situational. And then you'll be basically stuck with it. At the same time, um, you might buy something that the price is right, but you know it was just wasn't the right timing to buy it. Diamonds are not a commodity like gold. Think about it. I mean, gold, you can... You can look at the spot of gold and the, you know, stock market and say, gold today is nineteen hundred for yeah. My one ounce is gold ounce. today. I, exactly. Yeah. You can't do that with diamonds. Diamonds have so many different qualities. Like there's color and clarity, and there's probably over a hundred different combinations. 
D to all the way down to Z. As you go up in the alphabet, D being like the whitest, as you progress up in the alphabet, you're actually going down in color. And then you've got clarities. You've got anything from flawless, and then you've got VVSs, which is very, very slightly included. Those are literally like microscopic, that, that considered good. That's like really clean materials. And then it jumps all the way down to I1, I2, I3, which I1 means that at least 45%, 50% of the diamond is heavily included. People are buying those qualities, but you have to keep in mind every diamond is going to be different. And you, every diamond is going to have different characteristics, meaning that the origin and the area where it was mined, it can have black carbon spots. It can have feathers. It can have clouds. It can have needles. It can have cavities that were created during the cutting process. So there's a lot to look into, and there's a lot of... A lot of it has been mentioning on the certificates, not all of it, but you really have to look at the overall appearance. I always tell people, don't get caught up in looking at the certificates. They're important to have as a documentation of what you purchased or for appraising purposes. But at the end of the day, you have to look at the diamond as very simple. Do you like it? Does it speak to you? Does it shine? Does it do a little dance? If it doesn't, it doesn't. The cert can say that it's deflawless and everything checks on color clarity, cut grade, and so forth, but you don't like it, so you don't buy it. That's why I have a hard time understanding like people buying from like third-party platforms online because they're using they're using somebody else's inventory and they're just suggesting whatever the the, the laboratory is indicating that the diamond is, but even if they have a video, nine out of 10 times, it's, it's just a stock video. It's not really an actual 360 video of the diamond. So a lot of people are just like buying it more in the dark, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, and what, how much could a person know about diamonds if they're just a lay person? I mean, at the end of the day, it really comes down to finding somebody you trust, I would guess. 100%, and it's, it's the million-dollar question, Vance, because... The majority of the younger population today, I think they, it, it, it's time factor, obviously factoring in time. Some of them are very busy, so I get it. They don't always have time to go and meet with someone, but I think for a lot of them is intimidation just to sit and talk or walk into a jewelry store. It's very intimidating for them. And of course I'm generalizing. Well, I mean, I think that's probably true because it, like, there's an asymmetry to it, right? So exactly. for the person that's selling it and you've had a business for 20 years, this sale is not going to make or break you. But as the person buying it and it being your largest purchase, like your uh, anxiety about making a mistake, about, about you know doing something wrong, about whatever, about her even saying yes is way up there. So there's an asymmetry there that um, that that if you could avoid it, I can imagine the temptation would be really strong. Correct. And as a supplier, I see a lot of like mistakes being made by the consumer. I'll give you an example. Somebody walking into a jeweler, he's been working with that jeweler for a month, creating the, the dream ring for his girl. And after the proposal, the girl is like, I hate rounds. I wanted an oval or I don't like this emerald cut. I wanted a pear shape or whatever the situation may be. It's normal. It happens. I mean, you're not going to 
some guys take it like personally because they're like, well, I've designed it and I worked on it. And obviously if the element of surprise is there, most of, most of the times they don't consult with their girlfriend. They just on a whim buy the ring that they like. I see it differently where some guys bring their girl to the store and let her be involved, but that's, that's more rare. So sometimes if you made that mistake, you want to deal with someone that is like, no big deal, nor harm, nor foul. Like just let's swap it out to whatever shape she wants. You want to keep the client. You want to make them happy. It's, it's the ring she's going to wear for the rest of her life. It's a big deal. Yeah, that was so in all transparency, I brought a sapphire for my wife, but that's only because I loved it, right? Like I, I saw it and I thought it was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen in my life. And I was like, this is what I, this is what I want. It's awesome. And I, I admire that you did that. I think there's no rules. A lot of people think that there is a very specific like template of how to do an engagement ring. And apparently there isn't. Even when it comes to like a matching band for the wedding band, for the wedding ring down the road, I haven't seen, and I can tell you just by looking at the trends that I see lately, there really no, there are no guidelines. So I think people are being really creative nowadays. The social media, Instagram, Pinterest is giving them a lot of legitimacy to be special, to be unique, to be creative. And I don't think that they uh, think about like, impressing someone other than just giving something that I think the sentimental value would be kept. And I think that's how a lot of the new generation is buying jewelry. Yeah. I think back on it and I, my buddy had told me, cause I was like, it was so much money for me. And, and like, I had just really gotten my first serious professional job. I was working at the world bank and I was out in DC. So I actually, for the first time in my life had money and I met this girl that I was like, this is the one I'm going to marry. And uh, I was like, but I can't imagine spending X dollars. And he was like, man, that is the one piece of jewelry that literally, as long as you don't screw this up, is the one piece of jewelry she's going to wear for the rest of her life. It's and that's so when true. you're like, oh, okay, maybe it is worthwhile to spend some money on this. And I'll tell you that when you, when you do acquire a beautiful piece of jewelry and you put a little time to design it, it, it ab- absolutely like you know, make its impact. And I think, I think I said at the beginning of the uh, conversation, because it's such an emotional purchase for a lot of guys and girls, I think that by the time they do it, they, it makes them very happy. Kind of give them like this sense of pride, especially after they announce their engagement to their family or their close friends. It's, it's a very, very powerful evidence that you not only marrying this person, you are invested in them. Yeah. Looking back on it now, I realize like, uh, one, it was a signal that our marriage was going to be a little bit different, that I did something different. And the other was that, uh, you know, my wife just accepting like me for the, for the person that I was, I, she maybe wanted a diamond, but she never told me. Right. Like, and it was a very, to me that that's, that was correct. Right. Like there was a lot of things about marriage that you can't know until you're in it. Right. Until you're, until you're going through the marriage ceremony and you're like, oh, this wasn't about me. This is about bringing two families together, you know, on and on and on. And that's one that I think represents us very well. 
And I think it's also set the tone for the rest of your marriage because once you taste what it's like to buy a fun piece of jewelry, especially an engagement ring, it doesn't mean necessarily that you're um, materialistic and you're into luxury goods. I think a lot of people want their wife to be happy, especially after giving birth, you know. You see everything that they go through. Um, you want to document and commemorate special events in your life. So sometimes people are like, hey, I want to buy her something special like a pendant or diamond studs. Or I want to give her like a push gift, a bracelet. Or So I see it more and more where it's on people's radar. Whereas maybe our previous generation was more conservative. They wouldn't buy as often. It's got so many beautiful options and price points, different price points today, especially with having a second product as the lab created that opens up like a whole nother world of um, just fun for people. Jewelry is fun. I think that, again, the previous generation was buying, especially like the heavy metal pieces, like gold chains were, you know, consisted of like 30, 40 grams for a chain. So people bought it as, as an investment because, wow, gold is going to go up. And yes, historically, gold has gone up, no doubt about it. But you can't say the same about diamonds. Not natural and not lab-created. I mean, diamonds are just not an investment. And it took me many years to realize it as a supplier because it's very similar to real estate. I, I, I hate to compare the two, but I'll, for our listeners and People are watching this show. I, I have to break it down that way because when you buy your own home, your primary residency, you know, you don't look at it as an investment. You might fall in love with a house that has the kitchen that both you and your wife absolutely love, and you might be overpaying for that house, over asking price. But you fell in love with that house. You fell in love with the subdivision. You fell in love with the town or the school district that it's in, and you bought it. And two, three, four years down the road, it doesn't appraise when you go to sell it. It's the same thing with diamonds. It's always going to be a markup behind the scene that you can't get back. Like guys like me or the jeweler that sold it to you. or Because everybody's entitled and has to make a certain margin. Some people make more margins than others. But I'm in an industry that the average Joe is wearing so many hats. You know, you're the buyer, you're the accountant, you're the clerk, you're the designer, you're the bench guy that physically do the hard labor <laughs> and the repairs. So you have to make a margin. And it's the same with the real estate industry, residential. I don't know much about commercial, but look how many like parties when you buy a home between the financing and showing you the house. There's so many groups of people until like it's signed and sealed, then somebody funded your loan. It's a lot of moving parts behind the scene that everybody gets their cut. Yeah. And once you run a business, you realize like, whoa, like running this business is more than just what did it cost to produce that one single thing that's right in front of me? Because there are lights in this place. There was paint put on there. There's carpet underneath you. There's chairs. There's everything. And it's easy if you're a 20 year old to be like, oh, I don't understand why these things cost stuff. But when you're running a business, like you understand everything is more expensive because there's a lot more costs in there than you would normally understand. I agree a hundred percent. 
And I think in jewelry, just like in art that you mentioned before, people do buy from people and there's got to be some kind of a connection and trust. A lot of people walk into a gallery and if the artist himself happened to be there, makes a huge difference of how they connect with that piece of art that they've purchased. Yeah, I mean, the story is everything, right? Like it's the, it is the, what is the narrative here? Because really at the end of the day, it's like objects, right? There, it's only value is what would somebody else pay for it? But there are so many things that it doesn't matter what you would pay for it. The question is, what would I pay for it? So for example, a painting on the wall that might be worth literally nothing to somebody else. But if somebody tried to like buy it from me, the, the, the amount that you would have to pay, pay me to give it up would be way higher than its physical value for paint and canvas in a frame. You have to really um, look at a piece of art and say, I see something that others don't. And when you do, you have to have the confidence to purchase it. And if you don't, you don't. But it's the same with deciding on customizing a piece of jewelry. It's what you're doing. I mean, like in a way, it's being an art dealer, right? Because you're saying, look, this isn't an investment. This is something that you've got to connect with. And you're being an art dealer for the people that are actually dealing the art. You know, I wish I can look at it that way. I think because there's so much options and so many purveyors and suppliers in our industry, I think a lot of people can compare anything that they purchase to everyone else's, you know? But I would 100% say if you customize something to someone that they were in the driver's seat the entire process, and they wanted like three or four different elements from three, four different pieces of jewelry that they've seen, but it's theirs. And even if there's like a lot of like big no-nos about design, they still want to do it, then I agree 100%. It's, it's a piece of art and it's something that they took a part of. And uh, who are you to tell them that that piece of, obviously not some of the famous artists like, that we've known, but somebody unknown, who are you to tell them that this unknown artist and his piece on the wall is not pretty or doesn't do something to you? So I think that's kind of, in a nutshell, how you can compare the two and make a connection. If you were breaking into a new, a new client, right? You're going to a new retailer. What is it that you tell them about what makes you different than the other wholesalers that are going to come by? Patience. It's a great question. I mean, in my industry, you have to have a lot of patience because the average jeweler, whether it's a large corporation or just a mom and pop store that, that does a million dollars out of that building, a million dollar a year is relatively an, an average small store. You have to understand that most likely their capital is being used for other inventory than diamonds. I mean, it goes to semi-mounts and jewelry and pearls and payroll and just running things. So people aren't having the buying power that they've had 10, 15, 20 years ago. So I look at it as if I have to finance a lot of deals. And behind the scene of what I'm doing, Look at, I started my business with 40 grand back in 2007. 
leaving that company that I worked for that mentored me by no choice. I mean, they basically gave me a great opportunity to become an entity on my own. Uh, they did not give it to like 17 other sales reps they had across the country. And I knew I, I had to take it and not blew and I didn't blow it. You know, I just went for it, but I took that money and I kept borrowing and borrowing and slowly growing my business. It was all about consistency, but I made sure that I have strong enough relationships with certain banks. Some of them are local, but some of them also are, you know, big banks nationwide and always have the ability to have a line of credit and buy because when things are bad, the jeweler down the street is most likely not going to buy, not going to take the risks. And I don't blame them. They have other things and other hats and other things that they're doing. So they're relying on vendors like me. Obviously, I'm not alone in this, but they're relying on how patient I am. And I think that's what separates me from other competitors that I have. Is that I, because you deliver them some diamonds and you say, I'm, I can wait for payment on those diamonds? I can leave them pieces on consignment and give them enough time to work with those pieces and their clients. And only when they have a sale, only when they're sure that their client is going to pull the trigger and pay them, that's when I get paid. And patience is, is not the right. It's basically a financing game. You have to be able to look at it as, as financing. And, and some products like natural diamonds, I'll be honest, the margins on natural diamonds the last five to 10 years sucks. I mean, I used to be able to, to do 12 to 15% gross margins. Whereas today, if I, if I get eight to 10%, it's like, wow, it's awesome. So if you add two, 3%, or in my case now with rates being as high as they are four or 5% on. Oh, for the money you're loaned. You're if, loaned if you have, if, if you are financing the goods and somebody is taking their time or they're not paying you, which unfortunately I had scenarios. Nobody wants to have an account receivable, but I, I had, uh, the years that I started I actually had a pretty significant account receivable that, you know, the, the average aging days were, was over a hundred days. That's, that's no fun. You know, you, you go to bed and you're like, you get a lot more gray hairs that way. hundred percent. Show me one diamond dealer that doesn't have gray <laughs> or hair at all. So, so you, I, I had a lot of like sleepless nights in that regards, but it's, it's better now because Obviously, I think a lot of the jewelry stores that stuck around, they, they figured out the formula that works for them to, and, and the size that works for them to uh, not only survive, but to be profitable. You mentioned traveling around, you're going, let's say, to Tel Aviv, and you're looking at some diamonds. You fly back on a plane carrying a bunch of diamonds? Hell no. Okay. <laughs> so you have third-party companies that deal with you know, shipping anything from coins to money to gold and diamonds. Those third-party companies, uh, not only securing and insuring the goods, they're also acting as your agent when, when it comes to customs and things like that. Um, it's not worth the risk. Obviously, if you were a smuggler, you would just <laughs> walk right in to the United States. But It'd be silly to do because there's like four countries that have like a treaty trader agreements. So when it comes to loose diamonds, as long as it's not 
when it's a finished piece of jewelry, it's it's more complicated because there's like labor and manufacturing and recycled metals behind the scene that goes into it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a little different. But loose diamonds, there's an agreement between Israel, Belgium, India, and uh, South Africa. And you can import them as long as you pay taxes, which I, I assume that if you're a reputable company, you do pay your taxes. Uh, you don't have to pay any custom fees to import, but you do pay your taxes when you sell the goods, your cost of goods sold and, and so forth. There is a very small symbolic fee, obviously, for what we call port fees, but that's uh, that's very insignificant. You know, it's 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 nothing. It's peanuts. It's basically on every million dollars you 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 pay like a couple hundred dollars. The idea is that you can import, and if something doesn't go well, or you have returns, you have to send something back to um, to your vendor. By the end of that uh, fiscal year, you have the ability to do that without paying a fine or, or pay twice for um, customs. So it's very interesting. It's a very tight business. Uh, the way that I travel has changed, obviously, mainly being a, a father. And um, my wife, who I love, is very successful as well. She's an entrepreneur as well. She has her business in the physical therapy uh, world. So. We're trying to find the balance and, and we're very lucky because I think we're living in a very exciting times. I know the environment in the United States. I've heard some of your podcasts regarding, you know, you know, cryptos and the economy in general. I think that the average person don't realize how much opportunity there's still out there and how many tools we have and how many great jobs people can grab or start their own business. We're still a very, very strong country in that respect. And trust me, I do have a good barometer because Israel is a wonderful country, but it's it's not very easy on the the small business owner. And 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 I'm saying it very politically correct. There's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of uh, it's almost like they make it very difficult for small businesses over there. And the majority of my friends, not only that they they're not entrepreneurs over there, they they have good jobs, but they they definitely in that startup high tech world, which pays well. And if you're knowledgeable enough, I mean, it's it's a very fast growing industry out there. But in the United States, I mean, you you can start. Um, if you asked me 20 years ago if I would succeed making an, in the diamond business on my own with a starting capital of 40 grand, I would tell you, hell no. Yeah, the conclusion that I've come to is that. Uh you sh- have to be aware that there's so much risk, but you have to just go past it anyway. Because if you really understood the risk or you understood how hard anything you're doing is going to be, you just wouldn't do it. And then like, then where are you? And like, this is uh, you know, it's a harder thing once you have kids too, right? Because then all of a sudden you're not just like, well, I could eat ramen. Like I know what it's like to be poor. That's not a problem. But now all of a sudden you're like, but I want to be able to pay for my kids. I want to be able to get them special things and make sure they have the right education. And I want my wife to have these opportunities. And so now all of a sudden you're like, is it better to do the safe thing where I know the the highest point I can get? Or am I willing to take some risk? And then you look around at the world and you say, oh my God, look how much risk there is in this world. I don't, I don't know. I want to go hide away. But if you do that, like there's definitely a cap on how far you can go. It's true. It's, it's, it's a psychological thing. 
for the most part, but it's also very geographic. I think we're very fortunate to be in the Midwest um, because obviously it's hard to say. I think cost of living rise everywhere, right? Everything is not what it used to be. But still, we're very lucky in that sense that things are more affordable around here. And if you don't want to live in right in the heart of Kansas City or St. Louis or Chicago, just you go slightly out to the suburbs and and it's it's a different landscape. Oh, my whole life changed when we finally got away from the idea that we needed to be on the coast. I was living with my wife in a 480 square foot apartment that looked out on a brick wall. And uh, and then for half of what our rent was there, we got a mortgage for a two story house with a backyard where I had a garage and like, I mean, like I instantly <laughs> became wealthier as soon as I moved to St. Louis. But for so long, I had constructed in my mind like these weird arguments like like I was always like, oh, I wouldn't want to be landlocked. Like it's not like I was going to the ocean when I was like in, living in D.C. or New York. For some reason, I just had this this concept in my brain. And I think that kind of concept has kept the cost of living down here. It's true. I mean, I look at it as an immigrant that uh, lived in other parts of the country. And I can definitely tell you that not only that it's more affordable, I also had more opportunity to meet people as a single person in St. Louis just because. So I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, the company I worked for, their U.S. headquarters was uh, right, right outside of uh, Washington, D.C., in Rockville, Maryland. So you're probably familiar with that area. And I was about four weeks in St. Louis and set up, setting up shop for my company at the time. And my boss, my old boss called me at the time and he says, how are things? How do you like St. Louis? And I said, it's great. And he goes, what do you like about St. Louis? And I said, you know, there's, there's a small talk around here. I really like it. And he's like, what, what do you mean? And I go, you know, you walk into an elevator and people just start talking to you and asking about the weather or if you watched a baseball game. And he's like, he couldn't believe it. He was shocked. Because as you well know, you're like, if you're in the East Coast, forget about it. People barely say good morning. It's not that they're not nice. It's just, it's a higher pace. It's a different mentality. Well, go to a restaurant and like the waiter is financially incentivized not to care too much about you because what they <laughs> want is throughput, right? They want as many people as they can. Whereas we would come to a restaurant in St. Louis and all of a sudden you'd be like, I, I know the waiter's name and like we're chatting and it's a totally different dynamic. Exactly. So that's kind of how I met my wife. I, uh, you know, when you're single, you're, you're forced to go out a lot by yourself sometimes because you're, you just, you're sitting at home and you're bored and you just get in the car and go. So I was sitting one night at Cafe Napoli at the bar, became really good friends with, uh, the bartender, Han Tron. Han is a very well-known person. I always joke that he's running a church. He's not really a bartender because <laughs> he knows so many people and connects so many people. And he said, and, and around that time I was dating someone. It didn't go very well. I was in a long-term relationship and it just ended. And so, uh, so was my wife. She was going through, uh, the same thing at the time. And he knew her and he said, uh, I want you to meet someone and I think you might like her. So he actually introduced us, uh, not that same moment, just basically exchanged at the time was like Facebook accounts and, uh, message each other and went out on a date and since then, it, the rest is history. But it was relatively simple to get to that point to talk to the bartender and 
meet other people because again, go back to the amount of friendly friendliest level that we have here that you don't have in other areas. Same thing how I met Jared Holst, you know, very similar. You once you meet someone like Jared, there's definitely a social connector. I mean, you pretty much set. And and St. Louis is definitely embracing. Here's the change in a good way that I've seen in the last 20 years. It's embracing more and more international community. And uh, people are more open to make this this town more global ecosystem, not just very narrow minded about what's happening locally. Yeah, my experience, you know, I've lived on both coasts. I've lived, you know, all over different countries. And people have this perception that, um, oh, the the more important conversations are happening somewhere else. Like I can find as intelligent of people here as I could anywhere else. And in fact, some of the smartest people that I have ever been able to have conversations with, I've met here. And I think a large reason for it is uh, the network is large enough that there are interesting, smart people here but small enough that you can get connected to them. They're not, it's not like you're not anonymous everywhere. I would agree with that. Also, what I like is that you go somewhere and you can sit next to a judge or a hockey player or just a guy from down the street that is on a date with his wife. I mean, it's, it's awesome that it's, it's big enough that it's convenient, but it's small enough that can be really good for communities and, and social life. Yeah. And I think uh, for me, it's all about now, like what's the best place to raise my kids. And like, I, I love it here, which speaking of which I got to go pick them up, but I'm so glad you came by. I've never met a diamond dealer. I, you, we didn't even scratch the surface on so much of what, what you can talk about. So you got to come, come back and we'll talk about you being in the Israeli military. We'll talk about cooking and running and all this stuff. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. So if people wanted to find out more about uh, diamond wholesaling, it's stuff just wanted to talk with you. What, how would they go about that? Sure. So the name of my company is Cherry Pick Diamonds. Uh, I named it Cherry Pick just because when I started, I had to like literally like doing some cherry picking. I did. I had, you know, small amount of capital. So it's cherrypickdiamonds.com. And uh, I'll have a lot of info on my website. I'm actually redoing my website as we speak. And I'll even like uh, tag on like, you know, our meeting today as a link. That sounds good, man. Well, come on back. I'd love to have you. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Ah, ah, ah.